case. Hope Not Hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backwards thinking, virtue, sick, virtue signaling, fake news crate. Welcome, you're listening to Nick Ryan on the Hope Not Hate podcast. We've got a new edition of the Hope Not Hate magazine coming out, and it's looking at the multifaceted nature of extremism and threats to democracy in the USA today. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by an old friend, Heidi Byrick. She's one of the foremost experts on the extreme right in the USA today. And Heidi was, for many years, she was head of the intelligence project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And I first met Heidi back in, I think it was 2001. So uh, I'm glad to say that even if you can't see this, uh, we both look as youthful youthful as we did back then. Um, And Heidi kindly hosted me uh, during research for my book Homeland, which was which was my kind of whirlwind tour through the uh, stranger corners of the far right and which which came out a few years ago now. Um, But anyway, Heidi, I'm delighted to welcome you to the podcast and glad to have you with us. Oh, Nick, it's wonderful. And it is nice to see an old friend. So thanks for having me. No problem. It's, it's lovely to see you as well. So Heidi, today you're co-founder of something called the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, it, we just launched the project in July. And it's um, really an attempt to look at the extremist movements that I dealt with for years at the Southern Poverty Law Center, but from a more transnational and international perspective. Um, we're really excited about doing uh, work against the radical right in places where maybe that work isn't being done or to highlight the work of others who are already doing work in those places. And we're hoping to bring our contacts to bear in like the tech world, for example, to uplift you know, the work of others in places that don't get the, the attention that they deserve. So in some ways, it's an exciting time to be launching a new venture, but also maybe it's indicative of the... Uh, kind of the growing nature of the threat, the, the, the fact that there's so many organizations and experts needed now, it, it feels to me like there's more of us out there looking at this, but of course the threat we're dealing with feels much larger than it did say 20 years ago. Oh, I don't think there's any question, right? This is now, at least if we're talking about white supremacy, it's an international movement, it's rooted in multiple countries. The extremists that we're dealing with don't view themselves as Americans or Brits or Swedes. They think they're part of, you know, white pride worldwide, right? A worldwide movement. And yeah, sadly, there are far more of us who are experts now on this movement. Um, There's lots of very talented, you know, young academics who are studying this material. And the fact of the matter is that's because there's more of it. You know, I'd hoped when I started working at the um, Southern Poverty Law Center back in 1999, that there would be a time when I was still young, that we'd put our, you know, we'd shut our place down, right? That this would be over. I didn't think I'd be sitting here 20 years later looking at, you know, an attack in Christchurch against Muslims, attacks in Germany against immigrants and Jews, attacks in the United States at a Walmart in El Paso. I mean, it's really, it's, it's a little insane that this problem has metastasized the way it has. So, so yeah, you, you, you're quite right. If, if we try and say, what's the problem in one country, we can't really divorce that from what's going on in another country or, of course, online, which is where a lot of this stuff seems to sort of fester. I think that's right. I mean, you can't, you can't look at the threat of white supremacy from a domestic frame in any country any longer. It's a little bit more akin to like ISIS or Al-Qaeda or something, right? I mean, it they're, they're non-state actors, obviously, but they have international reach, international organizing ability, international chapters, depending on what group you're talking about. 
the same propaganda shared um, across regions, you know, specifically propaganda around the Great Replacement and the idea that, you know, white people are being genocided by immigrants in various places. Uh, and, you know, you just pointed out, it's the internet that got us to this place because back in the 90s, or even when you came and visited me in the early 2000s, you know, we were concerned about hate websites. We couldn't ever have imagined social media uh, being able to propel the radicalization of thousands and thousands of people across across the world. And, you know, when I think about it, I think of it like Hitler using radio back in the 30s to radicalize the German population into anti-Semitism before radio was, you know, when there was a clampdown after World War II to put some constraints on things like hate speech and whatnot. And it was a new technology then. We have this new technology and it's only within the last couple of years that the mainstream platforms are even thinking about the fact that they need to ban hate speech because it's poisoning people's minds. Um, yeah, that's, re that's really interesting. So you, you mentioned, you know, back in the day, so to speak. Um, so I remember when I came over to the US, just before the Twin Towers came down, actually it was, you know, obviously no one knew that was going to, well, I didn't know that was going to happen. Um, but I remember meeting Don Black, who was, you know, the founder at the time of Stormfront, this, you know, horrible neo-Nazi forum website, the kind of granddaddy of, of all these sort of things. And, and now that seems horribly quaint almost that there's just one one or two places where the baddies the bad guys live uh, I mean really if we were sort of talking about the far right threat if I can call it that uh, is, is the has the threat moved beyond uh, organized movements are, are we really looking at uh, are we looking at the mainstreaming if you like of far right ideologies it was certainly in the US um, with, with the way politics have gone you know into the mainstream am, am I right with that thinking I don't think there's any question. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, the only people talking about in the U.S. context building a wall on the southern border were white supremacist groups like the Council of Conservative Citizens, who I think you also met with back in the day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, now this is, uh, uh, you know, this is the president of the United States proposing this in a raft of anti-immigrant measures that, that would have never happened. I mean, in the United States under George Bush, trying to come up with a way to um, deal with undocumented workers in the U.S. was a bipartisan effort to move to legalize them. It wasn't an attempt to separate families at the border, throw people in cages. I mean, all this horrible stuff originated on the extreme fringes on the right. And slowly over the last 20 years in the U.S. and, and same in Britain and other places, moved its way into the mainstream. And it's, it's quite frightening and i think in some ways it was happening without people you know the general public understanding that we were having a major shift in the way politics functions and so now we have far-right political parties even fringe parties in government you know i think of like afd in germany mm -hmm. and major formations on the populist right in almost every single western country so in in europe yeah that's something you know, we've seen, in fact, even back when I was doing my research, there were already on continental Europe, there were already parties, some, some of them still around, like the Freedom Party in Austria, for example, that had very strong showings. But you're right, the US, not so much, but something must have been going on. I mean, there's broader themes here, aren't there, to, you know, anti-capitalism and, you know, the, the Democrats, you know, the, the way that they've had their splits, you know, the Sanders side and you know whoever else on the on the other um and coming back to the present day is trump a far-right 
president, a far-right politician, as some seem to have said? Well, I think most of the analysis by academics about where his positions sit and really where the Republican Party sits today would put them more in the camp of, um, you know, sort of the National Front, which has been renamed, uh, the AFD. Uh, it, it would put them aligned with very far-right parties um, in Europe, right? It's, the party has radicalized in, intensely in the United States. And, you know, Trump is someone who I don't think could have existed in the U.S. 10 years ago, but especially when it comes to anti-immigrant um, politics, slowly but surely, the Republican Party became more and more and more anti-immigrant over the last 20 years. You know, we had the Tea Party arise um, when Obama came into office and it, it became an anti-immigrant force in the party. We had the reactions against Obama, things like the birther movement, conspiracy theories, all this was swirling around, but by the time Trump was elected president, the Republican Party was essentially captured by mm. its extreme right end. And those who you, know, you would expect or hope would speak out against those trends are completely silent. You know, when, when Trump, um, just a couple of days ago in that horrific presidential debate, he told the Proud Boys to you know, stand by and stand down or whatever the exact language was, yeah, you couldn't get a, you know, the Proud Boys are an anti-Muslim, misogynistic, white supremacist ranks as bad people involved in violence. Yeah. You couldn't get a Republican except for the one black senator from South Carolina to, to denounce Trump. How did this come to be? That's that's where we're at now. So for, for um, let, let's just say for a Brit, for one of our viewers or, or listeners or readers uh, over this side of the water, I mean, how can you, I mean, is it possible to paint a picture of, of, of what the extreme right looks like at the moment in the, in the US at different levels? So from president, as we just mentioned, down, you mentioned some groups there. I mean, just broad, a broad brush, how, how would you describe it? Sure. I mean, I think at this point, you know, you have Trump in the Republican Party that has, I wouldn't say a white supremacist base, but a base that is very culturally uncomfortable with changing demographics in the U.S. So not comfortable with Muslims, not comfortable with immigrants, strains of white supremacy in it. Do we call them white nationalists? Sorry, there's terms that we don't necessarily use always in the U.K. that I know are more familiar in the U.S. context. I would say that some of the members of Trump's administration are white nationalists. I would say Stephen Miller is. He has connections to extremist groups. By that, I'm talking about the anti-immigrant hate group V-Dare, for example. His positions are, to my mind, indistinguishable when it comes to immigrants and Muslims and celebrating Western civilization from someone like Jared Taylor, who runs the white nationalist group American Renaissance and has for you know decades. Yeah. Uh, there's also several members of the administration who are active in anti-immigrant hate groups like the Federation for American Immigration Reform, the Center for Immigration Studies, others in anti-Muslim groups, right, mm -hmm. um, in the United States. So there, there are white nationalists in the White House. Right. I don't, you know, I sometimes wonder if Trump even really understands what he's peddling and, and selling and how horrible it is. Then there are factions of the Republican Party that have become so hardcore um, anti-immigrant that they don't sound much different than our white supremacists. Mm -hmm. So that's the party, right? Yeah. It gets even more radical if you go down to some of the state parties. You have, uh, for example, this morning it was announced that a senatorial candidate 
in Delaware is using this Proud Boys group as her security. The same thing happened in South Florida for some candidates. The wow. uh, disgraced and probably not going to be in prison because he'll get pardoned um, Trump ally and advisor Roger Stone used yeah. the Proud Boys for security. The other, okay. Yeah. The other thing that's gone on here is that we have an energized uh, white supremacist movement. It's bigger. There are more organizations, more people than used to exist. At the same time, our anti-government movement is larger, more politically involved than ever. And polling indicates, um, for example, from ABC News and the Washington Post and others, that maybe up to 20 million Americans, somewhere around 9-10% of the population, harbor the equivalent of white nationalist views or even neo-Nazi views. So this is a substantial problem in the U.S. And does this coincide, this sort of, uh, if I can call it mainstreaming of far-right narratives, if you like, does that include things like within it, rising levels of anti-Semitic beliefs or Islamophobic beliefs? I mean, resurgence of anti-Semitic beliefs, I should say. The anti-Semitism, the way it's been expressed in the U.S. is... um, Lately, what I mean, there's always been anti-Semitism in the United States and conspiracy theories around Jews. The big one um, that we've seen and that led to the violence in Pittsburgh, the gunman in the Pittsburgh uh, shooting of the synagogue, is this idea that Jews are behind a conspiracy to import immigrants into the U.S. Now, our immigrant population is much more Latin American than it is Muslim, right? It's, it's of a different nature than in a lot of European countries. But the, the, the anger towards it is the same, right? These are non-white people coming in. So you hear that conspiracy a lot. You also hear something which is common in Europe is these conspiracies around George Soros, right? That he's a Jew backing an attempt to you know, fundamentally change uh, Western societies, including the United States. In fact, Trump's last campaign ad in 2016 was this you know, depiction of Soros taking over the globe, right? It could have, it could have come out of a European playbook. Right, um, right. And anti-Semitism of all the old kinds is still out there, right? Neo-Nazis are still, you know, talking about Jewish conspiracies, Jewish power. And really the gunman in Pittsburgh was picking up on ideas from Kevin McDonald, who is not a well-known anti-Semite, but an important one. He testified, in, I think he was the only witness for David Irving in his the big trial in the UK, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's the one who first posited the Jews are behind importing immigrants. This was decades ago in the 1990s. So that is all happening while um, conspiracies about immigrants and hatred towards immigrants are flourishing. And there's still a strong anti-Muslim movement in the U.S., although I don't think it's of the level that you find in European countries. Yet Jeff Sessions, for example, and Stephen Miller, very close to David Horowitz, a big anti-Muslim uh, organizer. He, for example, funded Pamela Geller's group, Stop Islamophobia. Right. You know, so so these what we would call well, what we termed the counter jihad, or we used to call counter jihadists. So they're highly organized seemingly well monetized at least from my previous recollections oh yeah this these are big money organizations millions and millions of dollars and because they're nonprofits, often they're actually have nonprofit status you can see what kind of money they take in and, it, and it's sizable yeah yeah so you've got uh, so i'm just trying to understand and also for uh you know for people people here to understand that uh, the, the the kind of landscape is so you've got a president and a party seemingly captured by you know radical right you know populist ideas then you've got 
you know, you just mentioned that scary number of 20, up, up to 20 million Americans perhaps believing in, I, I think you said neo-Nazi beliefs, or at least very strong white, white nationalists, white, white, sorry, white nationalist beliefs. Then you've got the conspiracies surging, I guess as well, like here and everywhere else, the COVID-related, COVID-19, the coronavirus seems to have energised conspiracies, you know, accelerated them all over the place. So it's, it's like whack-a-mole, isn't it? People, and I guess we can talk separately about that, you know, what the social media companies should be doing. But so you've got all that proliferating and again, mainstreaming. And what our guys here talk about the post-organizational far right. So we, is that familiar to you? We're not looking, yeah. is the danger in movements or is the danger in the ideas and ideologies or in the tools like the social media company yeah. being used to spread them? Yeah, you can't, you can't look at, at, you can't look at the world in sort of groups and chapters the way that you used to. You know, the Southern Poverty Law Center puts out this hate map that I worked on forever um, that listed organizations, their chapters. And we were very cognizant while we were there that over time this was becoming less of a good indicator of of how these ideas were spreading, how this movement's organized. It's a completely disparate online thing now. I mean, it's a social movement without leadership, it has an agenda, right? You look at the mm-hmm. QAnon conspiracies, everybody agrees this crazy stuff, but you don't, have, you don't have card-carrying members of these groups anymore. You have online ecosystems. And really to study them, and I know this is something that Hope Not Hate has done repeatedly, you have to look at that online world. Um, and as they shift off of the mainstream platforms, um, you know, recently as they get people deplatformed and whatnot, well, then you're really looking at, you know, telegram chat rooms. And it, it's, yeah. this isn't about organizations anymore. This isn't the old school, the FBI can go infiltrate a group, right? Yeah. Those days yeah. are over. It's, it's hard though, isn't it? I mean, I find it just for myself, it's, it, it's hard also say with the, with the whole online world, the whole online sphere, it's getting into a, uh, a kind of younger mindset as well, at least from my perspective, is understanding the terms and terminologies, what goes on, you know, shitposting and trolling. You know, trolling, obviously, I'm, you know, aware of from, from being on the internet for a long time, but there's a lot of stuff. And when I interviewed this, this guy, Caleb Kane, you know, who now works for the American University, and talked to him about his journey, following all people like Stefan Molyneux and, you know, Lauren Sun, Jared, who mentioned earlier, Jared Taylor, American Renaissance and others. He was sucked into this world and it was all, it was coming through a prism of uh, men's rights, self-help, you know, college dropout looking, white college dropout, you know, poor town in in, uh, rural West Virginia, I think, you know, looking for something. And in that formative phase of your life, you know, late teens, early 20s, almost like a cult being sort of preyed on and these guys being sucked in but but understanding as well you know the environment in which things go on so people then post memes and stuff and share stuff to well 4chan or 8chan or whatever these forums with the kind of surface level excuse that it's all a joke you know we're just having a joke and but actually posting some really horrendous stuff or trying to encourage other people to you know take altered images and put them into you know muslim women in i don't know near a bombing site or something you know they're inserting them into that so it just seems i don't know how much it's a a coordinated thing going on or or whether it's just like-minded you know young men you know shitposting and basically joking so that i guess what i'm trying to say is it can be quite a confusing 
landscape to understand and, and to then if you're in law enforcement or uh people like us or whatever looking at where you focus your resources and, and what do you do is, is it is, should we focus on counter narratives should we focus on you know young people young men and you know look at why you know, people are you know claiming they're incels or whatever or you know where, where should we where should we look and how should we intervene if we can intervene well i think what you described is is right you have you know and i hadn't even talked about that those strains of misogynistic movements like the incels that are sucking people in these ironic memes pictures inside jokes inside sayings i mean i have to say the first time i heard about the incel movement and one of my colleagues was describing to me their their kind of dialogue about uh chads and stacy's all this like inside jargon i'm like wow um I think the intervention points are a lot more complicated. This is, this is no longer uh, just a law enforcement issue. And I know the folks over at American University are trying to figure out ways you know, to do de-radicalization work, and so, so are many others, um, to do counter-narratives work, whatnot. I mean, the one thing we know is thousands, maybe millions of young white men have been sucked into these universes in recent years. You know, in their extreme form, we end up with a Brett and Taryn or what happened in, in Christchurch. But there's a lot of, or Alec Manassian in Toronto with his van attack against uh, women. But there's a lot of lower levels of this. And because the web metastasizes this information and allows it to flow all over the place, and it allows for two, three, four, five-way communication in a way that radio and television don't, we've got a radicalization problem on our hands and the need to learn more about how to de-radicalize people. You talked about quite a few different techniques, counter-terrorism, I mean, counter-narratives, uh, interventions at schools, per, you know, advice to parents and so on. I think the truth is, is that we're all just starting to figure those things out, right? We're, you know, this has been going on for a while now with all these people getting sucked into these movements. Now there's a push to figure out what is the smartest and the most efficient and effective way to draw people out. And I don't think we know there's a lot of experiments going on, but what I do know is it needs to be figured out. In other words, the amount of this content needs to be reduced as much as it can on the mainstream platforms. So mm -hmm. people aren't sucked further into it. Of course, we can't do anything about telegram. We can't do anything about V contact, right? VK, but we mm -hmm. can do something about the places where, the audience reaches the largest. In other words, at least on Telegram, you're kind of preaching to the converted. You're not converting. Uh, but we got to figure out a way to get people out of these out of these movements. And it's not going to be easy. And that that work is, you know, pretty nascent. Well, Although well, there there are things to look at for folks that have worked to de-radicalize, like people who got into ISIS or Al Qaeda mm -hmm. um, as models. So, you know, should we should we be focusing on those? people who might go over the edge, for example. So, uh, you know, you mentioned the Christchurch terrorist or the guy in Walmart, the Walmart killer or whatever, or the Pittsburgh shooter, all those things, the Dylan Roofs. Should we, is that, is that, is that the danger? Is that the worst danger? So lone actor terrorism, effectively somebody buys into this ideology may not be part of an organized movement as such, but absorbs it it buys into that whole kind of internet culture thing, you know, so the live streaming of the attack and the messages on the weapons. So is that, is that where the danger is or, or is it the proud boys or boogaloo boys or, you know, people on the kind of street 
level or uh you know i'm asking you i'm asking you to sort of say where where you would point your your lens or or back at the, the established parties well i mean it's sort of a hierarchy of terribles right are we more concerned with the the lone actor who's going to kill you know 50 people in a mosque mosques in christchurch or are we concerned about you know street violence in portland you know coming from the far right are we concerned about hate crimes which in the united states we have terrible data on and don't really know are okay. we concerned about um sort of just general discrimination that results from people being involved in these movements that affect people of color all the time. These are all serious outcomes of people, you know, picking up and sucking in strains of white supremacy or misogyny or anti-Muslim thinking, all of which are pretty bad, right? And, yeah. and there's also the issue of destroy, the destroyed lives of, of the young white men who get sucked into these worlds, yeah. right? And yeah. I, I'm not talking about just if they do horrendous acts like Dylan Roof did, just their general lives are going to be ruined by, by this thought process. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I don't know, but what I do know is it took a really long time for the U.S. government agencies to accept that this was a problem. And, you know, although at this point the FBI has said that, the Department of Homeland Security, National Counterterrorism Center, State Department, we've got a president who doesn't seem to think that white nationalism matters at all. That could change depending on the election outcome in November. And then maybe we'll get to being serious, uh, at least in this country, about dealing with this problem. So we, we, were you shocked when um, President Trump said in the debate with Joe Biden the other night, his comment uh, effectively being seen to defend or encourage even the Proud Boys and, and then quickly offering his, 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 his view about Antifa and the left or whatever, you know, his whole, this whole framing of a BLM, you know, Black Lives Matter protest being simply something of the hard left. So he, this is politics as well, isn't it? This is to do with get, presumably appealing to a base of voters, maybe part of that 20 million and, or within that for whom these ideas take hold. But did it surprise you to hear him use that language? I mean, it surprised me in the sense that I have to think to myself, are you just stupid, right? I mean, why are you saying this in a national debate? But there's nothing out of the ordinary for Trump on this, right? He has posted, what was it, Britain First videos on his Twitter feed. Yeah, he's retweeted yeah. neo-Nazi material. He has played to the base by, you know, the first day he was running for office back in 2015, which I might add was the day before the Dylan Roof shootings. He called Mexicans mm -hmm. rapists. You know, this, is, this has been an ongoing thing. I think right after the Christchurch shooting, he told the reporter something like, white nationalists are a small movement and a bunch of losers, right? He doesn't take this stuff seriously because they're his base, right? I mean, they're at least right. a part of his base. So, you know, the best thing for trying to deal with this problem would probably not be not having this person as president, right? Because he's impeding efforts to take this seriously. But where do, so Heidi, where do uh, sort of various law enforcement and um, security agencies in the US, what, where do they focus in terms of the extreme right? Do, do they have a focus? I, I seem to remember Homeland, Department of Homeland Security didn't look at domestic terror from the extreme right. What, what, am I right in that? What, yeah. what, what's the situation now? Yeah, the, the, um, <laughs> So for years under Bush and Obama, 
the Department of Homeland Security just ignored this threat. They actually dismantled a right-wing intelligence unit run, um, run by Daryl Johnson, a law enforcement guy here in the U.S., in the early years of the Obama administration. It really wasn't until about 2014 that Obama started taking white supremacist terrorism seriously. There had been an attack on a Sikh temple by that point, some Jewish community senators, centers in Kansas, and and it was really just at the highest levels of the Obama administration. Okay. Interestingly, though, by this last year, even with Trump in office, uh, all of the major or uh, outfits, like I said, National Counterterrorism Center, DHS, FBI, and the State Department, have singled white supremacist violence as the number one domestic terrorist threat in the U.S. and admitted to its international implications. All this while Trump is ranting about Antifa and saying it's the far left that's the problem. I mean, it's just essentially absurd what Trump is saying, and nobody agrees I with know. it. It seems it seems it, it seems just crazy. It seems like it's saying black is white and white is black. You've got all your own experts telling you something, and you're just well, completely spitting it in the, in the opposite. <laughs> It's yeah. true. And all the while, I mean, remember, Trump is the one who ginned up the, uh, the uh, anti-lockdown protests, right? Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, tweeting about it, like come out in the streets. I mean, we weren't a month into our shutdown, I think, when that started. And that brought those groups like the Boogaloo Boys and the militias onto the street. And then Actually, that's, course, a re- that's a really interesting point. Sorry to interrupt you, Heidi. I was just yeah. thinking of, again of the uh, UK people. So I forgot to mention, and you did mention earlier, that there's separate to what I might call the far right, in my understanding, there's a whole thing. Uh, we can talk about militias, anti-government movements, patriot. So there's a, there's a wealth of different, I guess, groups, movements, trends out there. Uh, where people basically don't like the government, don't like the federal government, and you don't trust it. And that's got a long history, hasn't it? That, yeah, this, this movement's been around um, at least since the 1970s when Carter was in office and didn't like him, then didn't like Clinton, of course, Timothy McVeigh, right, the Oklahoma City oh, yeah. bomber, he, was, he attended militia meetings. Uh, the interesting thing that's happening today, though, is usually the militias hate the federal government. They hate Democrats more than they hate Republicans, but because they think Republicans will protect their Second Amendment rights, right, gun rights, basically. Yeah. What's happened now, though, is this movement is radically pro-Trump. I mean, they have decided that he is a wonderful guy. He needs to be president. He needs to be protected. So the reason you've seen um, these folks at the lockdown protests, you know, we had that notorious incident in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where militias were on the street and that kid, that young kid, Kyle Rittenhouse, killed some folks. Hmm. Um, these These are all the militia people that Trump has called out, and he's caused new militia formations to arise, like the Boogaloo Boys. They weren't around like 12, 13 months ago. And, okay. and so they went from the anti-lockdown protests where Trump was saying, come out on the streets, let's stop this. You know, they armed people invading like the state house in Detroit. It was crazy. Yeah, but then yeah. the social justice protests start and, the, and Trump starts saying terrible things about them. And these guys are on the streets. There's an attempted bombing of protesters by Boogaloo Boys in, in Las Vegas. A couple cops were shot by Boogaloo Boys in California. I mean, it's really ugly. And Trump just keeps ginning up the people who are most likely to be violent. And, you know, it makes me very concerned about the election. So the, so yeah, okay. So I, I think some of our other contributors are going to be talking about that as well, that yeah, as we accelerate these last few weeks towards that date in November, that there's a significant number of people 
who are armed <laughs> and seem uh, prone to conspiracy beliefs and willing to use potentially use violence. I mean, it must be a nightmare for law enforcement for one thing. And but the, the fact that groups seem to target uh, what they view as liberal cities, uh, you know, the, the Portland being a classic in Oregon being a classic example. And it, that's not to say new, is it? That's been a bit of a theme. Is that right for you know at least two or three years, or maybe even longer? I, I perhaps we're is that right? Where groups on the extreme right have turned up in order to make their presence known. Certainly the Proud Boys, I think, would have, you know, last couple of years. Yeah, well, of course we had the horrible, um, you know, I call them white riots in Charlottesville in 2017. Right. And, you know, for a few months after that, things were a bit tamped down. And I think people were shocked by the violence. Law enforcement was paying attention to the groups that were in Charlottesville. There's a lawsuit um, filed against a lot of those organizations by Integrity First for America. Uh, which is going to court this this fall, actually later this month, maybe. But within 12 months, the Proud Boys were holding events and Patriot Prayer out on the West Coast, big ones in West Coast cities, including Portland. So there was this like slight reprieve and then right back at it. Um, and it's just gotten more and more and more. I mean, at, at this point, it seems like you can't go through a weekend without some kind of a far right rally. Like the Proud Boys had a big one last weekend in in Portland. Um, and it's not do, just what the do they want, Heidi? Group. These groups, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Do these guys, from your understanding, do they simply want to fight? Is it a thing on the street? Do they want to shoot and kill people? Do, do you think they believe they're genuinely protecting something, or do you think these are, you know, out and out, you know, neo Nazis? I think there's some wish to cause mayhem, right? To sh come out on the streets and, and put out a show of force to attack their enemies, Antifa, right, which is what they're basically mostly targeting, to show um, their support for the president and for right-wing politics. This is all, all of a mix. Okay. Um, and it's sort of like once you start going out on the street, you keep going out on the street. Like I, and, and there's all this issue with people wanting to show I can wear my, you know, AK out on the streets of the United States. I can assert my gun rights. Um, mm -hmm. The po politics in the United States right now are so fraught that a lot of it's happening at a street level, which just hasn't been that common, you know, in the past. Uh, but, you know, here so we street, are. So street, street-based street violence then, or, or, or violence by groups on, on the right is something we should be particularly concerned about. And is, is that, so Proud Boys and people like that, is, is that more... Uh, well, boots fists kind of thing you know I mean is that and is the boogaloo boys and others anti-locked is that more armed is it or because oh, I'm trying to understand are these things all part of the same broad picture or are they separate are, do people belong to one group and another I know we you, we said earlier we shouldn't just talk about groups with you know with the internet everything's all a bit mixed up but you know where, how do these things all fit together what what's the patchwork like I, I think they all kind of bleed together. I think people, um, I, I, I'm, I, there's sort of a, I want to use my guns. I want to fight Antifa. Those, or I want to have my guns. I'm going to, you know, quote unquote, protect businesses and good people from the bad guys. Those basic ideas are shared by all the groups that you just listed. Patriot Prayer, Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boys, militia movements like the three percenters. So it's a little hard to figure out where all of this is. And all of them are broadly pro-Trump, which is the other part of this, right? They feel like they're okay. supporting the president by being out on the streets. 
So where does one end and the next one start? It's a, it's a little unclear because they're all mixed up too on the web, right? All these people. I mean, you may have a Boogaloo, well, we don't now, but before you had a Boogaloo Boys Facebook page, but some of those same people are going to be in a militia forum somewhere else. They're going to be on Telegram. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a mess, basically, if you're trying to tease people apart. I don't think you can put them in particular sort of um, buckets. Okay. No, I, I understand you there. So do we still have, or are there still active, sort of hardcore neo-Nazi uh, individuals, groups, organizations in the U.S. as well. So the the ones that may have been around or new, or new versions. So we, we talked, to, I guess, or we've covered in uh, Hope Not Hate, and I think you must have done as well, Atom Waffen and others, you know, I guess fairly small, but committed to the idea of sort of neo-Nazi uh, terrorism. Absolutely. Uh, Autumn Waffen, which, you know, I think in was it 2017 or 2018? Their members were responsible for five murders in the United States. Of course, mm -hmm. they had international reach. They became crushed largely because of the violence, right? They were, they, they, they were taken out with court cases. They've sort of popped back up, I think, recently under another name. We'll see what happens. Okay. The base was, yeah. is very similar. You know, these are basically neo-Nazi accelerationist movements. And the guy who um, runs that or created that is based in Russia, isn't it? Based, yeah. is based, no pun intended. It <laughs> claims to be some ex-private yeah, military sort of guy or something for the U.S. He, he was the US or something. Yeah, he was apparently a security contractor for the U.S. government for the military. Wow! In and which is unbelievable. You couldn't That's make it up, I, could you? No, you couldn't. And and <laughs> the fact that the base is the English translation of Al Qaeda, but it's a neo-Nazi group. You know, and when there was arrests, um, I'm up in North Georgia, that three members of the base were arrested here because they threatened to um, kill an anti-racist couple that lives a few counties from me. Right. Uh, those, that, there was a Canadian um, military guy with them when they were arrested. So it shows how international these movements are. And even if the groups kind of get slammed in this way, get investigated, these these particular organizations were attracting some really young kids, 16, 17, 18. Yeah. I talked to a counterterrorism person at the FBI a few years ago who was basically freaked out because there was no way for them to know who these kids might be. I mean, you know, you don't have a track record of watching someone who's, who's 15 years old, right? They yeah. pop up, they get on the web, and all of a sudden you find them in autumn often. So I, that's all happening as well. And depending on the outcomes in the election, you know, these are the kinds of people who might engage in mass violence if they're not happy about how things went. That's scary, isn't it? We, we just did in our recent uh, magazine and also um, throughout the channels, we, we put out something about a group here in the UK, which called itself the British Hand, which was kids as young as 15. And I think there's been others in other, you know, claiming to belong to other organizations, you know, as young as 13. British kids who are advocating for terror. In that case, they were using Telegram, but they were also using Instagram, uh, sort of somewhat unusually. And yeah, it's it's scary. Obviously, the physical numbers, I think, are relatively small. But again, fitting into this whole sort of patchwork picture of how these things all overlay on top of each other, it's, it's well, it can be scary. Again, I'm, I'm thinking, what, what, what does one do about it? Now, in terms of the... Um, the efforts that have been made there in the US, I don't know what your opinion is, say, of the social media companies or if you've interacted with them, directly with them, or certainly we have and others have. And there's a whole kind of debate around free speech as, as well. Should we be allowed to say whatever we want 
wherever we like it on whatever platform is available or as we would contend you know if you you have the right to freedom of speech but not necessarily in every possible venue everywhere on in every platform in the world well i mean look i blame the social media companies for the environment that we're in right now uh you know i i had been i have been lobbying google facebook paypal twitter others for about 10 years and it wasn't until uh, 2017 in Charlottesville that there seemed to be this like moment where the libertarian excuses and hiding behind a First Amendment idea, which does not apply to private businesses in the United States, yeah, all of a point. sudden they realized, oh my God, we're responsible for this. And it took the death of Heather Heyer, an anti-racist activist and injuries to many others for them to have that wake up call. But that was 2017. In the years before that, the, the platforms were filled with the most heinous neo-Nazi, racist, I mean, whatever, everything was in there. Well, they and made it, money out of it as well, didn't they, Heidi? Do you remember before, absolutely. a lot of them were even on PayPal, or well, let's say payment platforms, I should say, uh, because I don't want to name all of them, but uh, and it took a concerted effort to convince some of those platforms as well. And they've, they've, some of these guys have then created their own ones. Or you know, in the UK, you had um, Tommy Robinson, Stephen Yanksley Lennon, is everyone like, you know, seemingly earning, well, making a lot of money and having you know, a, a nice lifestyle and constantly traveling or whatever. And um, so you're sort of thinking, well, where does all the money come from? You know, there's this kind of, these are basically businesses these guys are yeah. running, you know, enterprises. I'm sure you've got examples over there. Oh my God. I went to PayPal at one point. I mean, PayPal has now cleaned up its system, but at the time I showed them pictures of clan groups that had PayPal buttons on them. I mean, clan groups. Right. right. This isn't some right. debate about immigration. It's the Klan, right? The oldest domestic yeah. terrorist group in the United States. And the attitude was, we're not changing this. What are you talking about? You know, we're not going to put in place this stuff. And remember, people were making money off of YouTube ads. Yeah. They had yeah. deals with Amazon for book sales where they got kickbacks. I mean, there was a whole financial ecosystem. That was really my first concern was trying to drain the money away and then going after the propaganda. At least we're not having this stupid debate, right, about the fact that the platforms can't regulate speech on them. Now the debate we're having is about how well they enact them, how good their policies are, you know, how their AI works. And there's still a lot of hate on the mainstream platforms. Yeah. But at least we're not having some stupid conversation about the First Amendment, which was just about driving me crazy. It is, it is a, people in the United States are protected from the government censoring their speech. But I mean, if I owned a restaurant, do I have to let a Klansman come in and rant about the Jews? No. And that's the same thing with Facebook or yeah. Twitter. So hopefully they, you know, <laughs> hope not hate my organization, Southern Poverty Law Center, Anti-Defamation League, many others are going to have to keep pounding on this until they get their systems clean. You know, yeah. I mean, that's just unfortunately the dynamic that we've ended up in. And if it wasn't for all of us civil rights activists and human rights activists, I don't think this would have changed. I really don't. Do you think you could, as you once probably did, go and interview some of these folks we've been discussing face to face? I'm sure when you ran the intelligence project or when you were just working for the, I'm sure in the past, I recall you guys would sometimes you know, conduct an actual you know, relatively civil interview with somebody or at least call them for a response to something in, in a journalistic sort of, fa you know, established journalistic fashion. It feels like we've moved beyond that, that we get targeted, uh, whether regular media or people working in our field, 
no longer neutral. In fact, even in 1999, I went with the International Committee of the Red Cross to um, Kosovo, the conflict there. And I, had a, I remember having a blue diplomatic passport with a big Red Cross thing on it. And of course, since the rise of uh, Al-Qaeda and particularly Islamic State, uh, you know, that was no longer safe either. You could be kidnapped and, you know, killed on some video, for, you know, for their propaganda purposes. So could you, as you once did, you know, talk to people, is it actually dangerous for, for, for you, uh, for us to even try and engage with these people? Well, I think for folks like you and I who are well known and who've written about this for years and they know what your your face is, you know, they know you, right? Yeah. It's probably more dangerous than than it was 20 years ago. I mean, I have some odd relationships with some people in the movement just because I've been talking to them for years and years and years, but it's obviously the non-violent sectors yeah. of the movement. People like Jared Taylor, for example, suit and tie kind of racist. Um, I think the other difference is you get, you know, you can be threatened in ways that you couldn't be 20 years ago, which is, you know, on Twitter, on Facebook, through electronic means that, um, you know, you could get horrifically harassed and trolled. And, and that just, you know, if you made a phone call to a white supremacist back in the early 2000s and they didn't like you and they told you to go to hell and hung up with you, that was usually the end of the matter. That is not going to be the end of the matter anymore. Yeah. So there is a certain... Yeah, I think it is dangerous. And I think about like that anti-racist couple a few counties over that these base members wanted to kill. Yeah, That's sort of a higher level of threat than I think we saw 20 years ago as well. Perhaps it all sits as well in, in, a, bit, in a broader panoply about the, just the loss of, it feels like the loss of civility. I mean, you look at the, you know, how polarized everything feels, particularly in your country, but also here we, we, we have Brexit. In fact, I remember when the Brexit vote occurred in the UK, the uh, the editor of my homeland book is is uh, is an American, and um, now lives back there, and he was sort of going, "Ha Brexit! Well, you Brits really know how to do it." And then, <laughs> you know, a couple of months later, three or four months later, and there's the uh, 2016 election that brought in Mr. Trump. And um, yes, I I wouldn't say it was karmic, but you know. Yeah. It felt very strange. <laughs> strange yeah, he, should, he shouldn't have been mocking you for Brexit. We've yeah. really went down the same rabbit hole, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, people people have their opinions, I guess. But let's um let let's just wrap wrap things up. Come to the end. So, um, tell us a little bit before we go about your organisation and the global. Do I call it? Is it the Global Project Against Hate or Hate and Extremism? I just want people it, to know. It's Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Good. And where can they find you online? Um, globalextremism.org or at globalextremism on Twitter. Those are both places you can find our reports and information about the organization. Great. And what are you setting out to do with the organization? Uh, well, our interest is trying to, you know, focus a little bit more on white supremacy and other kinds of extremist movements like anti-LGBTQ or anti-Muslim, but from a transnational perspective not okay. a domestic perspective, which is what I did for years at the Southern Poverty Law Center. We want to explore more the connections among groups across borders. So our first report, for example, was about generation identity, right? The racist organization has chapters in multiple countries and a presence in many places online. Our intention was specifically to get anybody connected to the great replacement theory and the attacks like Christchurch and others deplatformed, which we were able to do with uh, Twitter. We just don't think that should be in places where recruitment from the general public is, is easier, right? I mean, there's nothing I can do about, you know, Telegram. 
Um, so that's the purpose of the organization. We've done some work in Poland um, with the Never Again Association, yep. um, which is wonderful, looking at um, anti-LGBT and anti-Semitism basically online in that country, because we found that the tech companies don't pay attention in the same way to places with you know different languages, non-English or like the ones that they're most familiar with, say Spanish. Polish and Hungarian and things like that, they're not looking at hate in the same way. So we're trying to uplift the work of others who are, who are taking on those issues. The tech companies claim they have global policies, but let's just face it, the enforcement is different. And actually our last little bit of work has had to do with um, Facebook and anti-Muslim hate in India. Uh, oh, wow. you know, that's scandal. a big topic. That's yeah, this, there's been this big scandal about um, the head of policy over there being close to the to the BJP party and Narendra Modi, and and so we're trying to say that you know anti-Muslim hatred is particularly bad on Facebook and has been for a long time, and it's you know this isn't just about hate crimes. This is like you know the Rohingya genocide. I mean, this got to stop. This is a lot of people are dying from it. So those yeah. are the kinds of projects we'll be working on, but we've only been around for a couple months. So we're just getting on our feet. Well, I think you'll have more than enough work in front of you, Heidi. Sadly. I know, but, <laughs> yeah, sadly, you know, your, your brilliant work ethic and, and your knowledge and experience, but also sadly because of the extent of the problems out there. So uh, unless I've missed out anything uh, really, really obvious, which I may have done, but if I haven't, um, I'd just like to say thank you, Heidi, Heidi Byrick, for joining me on the Hope Not Hate podcast. Oh, thanks, Nick. This was fabulous.